Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. I got uh, thrown off because we didn't do one of these last week yeah. and because I had to intro the main episode last week yeah because you weren't here but uh kyle and i had a great time thanks to kyle uh kyle anderson from nerdist from he's so charismatic uh he's a blast yeah if i if something ever happened to me he could come in and no one would even notice (laughs) no i don't think that's true um but we did have a good time talking horror movies and home video releases and stuff um so thanks to kyle but uh that's not the show. That's the main show. This Indeed. is the movie journal. Let's pay the movie journal bill. Absolutely. So this uh, movie journal is brought to you by Miniflix, the premier streaming site for award-winning short films. Miniflix acquires short films that have premiered at Cannes, Sundance, uh, TIFF, and many more, meaning that you can see great short films available nowhere else online. Uh, Miniflix also offers several Oscar-nominated and Oscar-winning short films unavailable on, tip- on typical free video platforms. So today they wanted me to talk about this film now i'm i apologize i might get this wrong the spelling is a-i-s-s-a so that could be isa or aisa aisa is what not i would sure. say but i don't Asa, know perhaps hard to yeah. say but uh literally uh so let me uh, I, let me tell you about this it sounds pretty intense all right the film's title character is from uh the congo but resides on french soil when the french authorities attempt to deport her she claims to be a minor since she has no identification aisa must go through a rigorous physical examination to determine her likely age range though shot with a cold and clinical eye this eight minute short social drama remains an effective rally cry uh rallying cry for the preservation of human dignity in a scary modern world it was nominated for the short film category uh palme d'or at the 2004 can film festival mm. eventually walking away with the special distinction award so it uh, sounds pretty rough but yeah. also fairly relevant and thankfully it's only eight minutes there's something to be said for get in disturb people i like that kind of efficiency yeah uh but anyway so new films are being added every month and you can watch these incredible award-winning short films anytime anywhere on any streaming service for only 3.99 a month or as a Battleship Pretension listener, you can get a free 30-day trial of commercial-free, award-winning short films. Just go to the page for this week's movie journal and click on the Miniflix banner at the bottom to redeem the special offer. All right. Uh, let's start talking about movies. Okay. Because uh, we didn't do one of these last week. And but I'm uh, pretty I've been sure pretty busy, there's going to so. be one overlap. Um, yeah, there is going to okay. be one overlap. Um, at least one. Eh, maybe just one. Okay. So the first movie I saw, a movie I'd been meaning to see, it's not 20 years old. This is... I, we're old enough now that movies that like came out while we were already like cinephiles. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I'm gonna put that one on the list. <laughs> 20 years later, I got to it. Yeah. I watched, uh, Whit Stillman's the last days of disco. Ooh, Have you, you ever think? seen it? I love it. I uh, adore it. I really, really love it too. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those movies that takes place in a sort of reality just to the side of ours. You know, it's not it's, exactly, it's a little, yeah. Um, and it took me a minute to get into because I was like, uh, well, there's not a single character in this movie I want to spend. I would want right. to spend five minutes with in like, real life. Imagine, <laughs> imagine an Arid and Sorkin world where everybody still talked a lot, but were kind of dumb. Right. Didn't yeah, yeah. know it. Yeah. And we're all just kind of shitty people. They're really shallow, shitty people. Um, and yet I find that I, I ended up being weirdly touched by the movie by, at the end because it's sort of. 
Uh, oh, the, the other thing that's weird about it is the nightclub that they go to is like way too well lit for a nightclub mm-hmm. and also way too quiet throughout the entire movie. They're having conver- like sure. normal conversational tone conversations. <laughs> like if you're at a nightclub, no matter what, like you're yelling, you know, conversations at each other. That's the way it goes. This is my kind of nightclub. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, so I found that kind of strange, but then once I got into it, I realized it was part of the atmosphere of the movie. Um, but I feel like it's a movie that recognizes what we were saying that as characters are, um, shallow and not great people, mm-hmm. but it doesn't really judge them for that. And in fact, it doesn't even require them to change at all, which is uh, very intentional because they have a conversation. This is what made it feel like I was like, all right, this is this movie's from the nineties. They have uh, a long conversation about a lady in the tramp and <laughs> whether or not the tramp is like a good character because he becomes good at the end. Yeah. Uh, and so they, that's clearly what Stillman saying. Like, I understand what's going on here. I understand that these are bad people. Uh, and then intentionally doesn't have them change at the end, but instead, uh, just has them to go back to something one of the characters says about halfway through the movie uh, pair up. Mm-hmm. It just like by the end, it's like the the characters who are the worst are sort of walking off together, and the characters who are the least worst are sort of walking yeah. off together. Like people have just sort of found other people at their own level of yeah. self centeredness or whatever, and like they're able to just exist yeah. on that plane. And there's something weirdly sweet about it. It's it is such a fascinating film. I'm I'm mostly unfamiliar with Whit Stillman. I do adore this movie. I believe it's been in my top hundred for the last couple of lists that I've yeah. made um, because it's. I don't mean to, to speak about it only in reference to other filmmakers, but you know, I talked about like a certain type of Aaron Sorkin kind of quality. There's, it's like a, a more lovable Neil LeBute film in some ways. Uh, and there's just something, yeah. and I find there to be no judgment. Uh, the care, but I think with Stillman does not, uh, he doesn't think the characters are good, yeah. but I think he still loves them. Yeah. And I think he, I think he mourns, uh, the situation that they are just kind of stuck in this cycle of yeah. self obsession and that they're never really going to get out of it. And that is funny, but also unfortunate. Yeah. And this, this age of disco was sort of perfect for them. And there's the, you know, there's a, it's called the last days of disco and there's mm-hmm. they talk about clubs shutting down and like disco going away. But there's one character who has a speech, about, like a monologue about disco yeah. on the sidewalk that is so like rousing all yeah. of a sudden. Um, but yeah, it's also very, very funny. And um, I'm not yeah super familiar with so many either. But I did. What was the period piece he made uh, recently? The the oh, uh, love and friendship. Love and friendship. Which did you is, see that? Yeah, yeah, which Still, is great. I think one of the funniest movies of the past five years, probably. Mm. Um, and Last of the Disco is not as consistently funny as uh, Love and Friendship, but it has some very funny lines, including Kate Beckinsale. I can't remember the exact line. She was like, um, whatever I did wrong, I'm sorry for it. But whatever I didn't do wrong, I am not sorry. <laughs> it's something like that. <laughs> um, all right. So moving on to the other movie I watched is a movie that just came out this week uh it's a terrific sort of version of uh, i feel like we've been talking about these kind of biopics for a while which are like not like the standard like 
feel like we always use Ray as the like standard like boilerplate biopic. That's the one that because it goes takes a place over his whole life, but a biopic that just sort of centers on one part yes. of a person's life. So I saw a movie called Nico 1988, okay, which is about Nico, the um, uh, model turned singer, um, and uh, I guess the the titles of a bit misleading because it actually takes place from 1986 to 1988, mm-hmm. which is the year she died. Um, and so it's Nico at the end of her career, although she, you know, she died very young. She was only like 49 or something like mm-hmm. that when she died. Um, she had like a, a hemorrhage. Um, you know, she doesn't know she's at the end of her career. Uh, but the, the format of the movie is essentially, it's kind of a road movie. Um, that m- most of it she's had, she's moved to Manchester England by this point. But most of the movie takes place, uh, in various parts of Europe that she's touring, um, with a sort of thrown together group of musician junkies who <laughs> are the only people she can afford at this point in her career. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of a dysfunctional family in a way. Um, and then kind of also an actual family because her son ends up coming on and playing, uh, with them. But uh, really, it's sort of, I I think the movie really fits the tone of Nico's solo work, which is kind of like pre-goth and like haunted, but like also not, but not like theatrical or dwelling in it the way that some like goth would become. And so I feel like she's in a way she's a completely this version of Nico is a completely self-possessed person, self-actualized person, but also she in some ways has also kind of given up. She's still a heroin addict. She may not know know she's at the end, but she's like, this is where I am now. Mm -hmm. You know, um, she never, she talks about, uh, the, and the, the actress, uh, Trina Deerholm is her name is phenomenal. Um, uh, Ironically, because she's playing Nico in her actual brown hair color, Trina Deerholm was actually a blonde and had to dye her hair to play Nico's actual uh, Mm -hmm. hair color. But um, her performance is terrific, haunted, um, kind of alienated, and also she actually performs the songs and she does Nico's voice perfectly. And it is a Uh, very distinct voice. Yeah, very much. Um, And... and, uh, yeah, it's it's really a movie that's about uh, about um, it's about her performance, but uh, it's kind of like it's yeah, it's a non traditional biopic in the sense that, uh, as I described it in my review, it's kind of like a slow motion version of the second act of a behind the music episode. <laughs> it's sure. just like this is this would be someone else's rock bottom, but she's not. She was never really aiming for the top, and she's yeah. not really aiming to get out of this. Yeah, she's, she's not just sick of, and tired of being sick. Uh, and tired. Yeah, she just sort of dwells in this, and she seems content, or sometimes not content. But it doesn't. Nothing seems to last for for very long, um, and it's. Uh, you can see how she could be off putting, but also how can she, she, how she could be magnetic and also very sympathetic. Um, again, it really comes down to Trina Deerholm's fantastic performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, the movie's in, uh, it's in New York and LA playing right now. Okay. Nico 1988. All right. So, uh, my first film is a rewatch. Uh, this was going to happen eventually because of the class that I was teaching. I was able to put it off for long enough, but I did finally watch Zootopia. Now, I've seen the film. 
Um, oh, I was going to say, you've seen it before. Yeah. yeah. Um, and But it's part of the curriculum, uh, the part of the curriculum that I didn't write. And I'm glad that we did watch it because, you know, leading up to it, we're talking about, like, looking for themes in, in unlikely places. And Zootopia would seem to be an unlikely place to find you know, some rather deep social themes, but it's like, well, there's certainly a history of social themes in animal based uh, films and (laughs) stories. Um, but, uh, I do think that it's, you've seen it, right? Uh, yeah, I did see it. I think that it's analogy is a bit muddled. Um, which is, it's tough because it's trying to make, I think it's actually trying to make broad points, but with a very specific story. See, and I, and think, I don't think it totally works. I think you and I had this conversation at the time it came out. I think you're not giving the movie enough credit. I, uh, I, I don't think it's trying to make as broad of points uh, as you think it okay, is. Okay, so uh, here's the thing. To me, the there is only one little, what uh, back in school we uh, my, one of my teachers called a stencil. There's only one real stencil that I think works point for point with Zootopia and I think it has to do with this is going to sound weird because people say like oh it's about racism it's like I don't think it is I think it's about terrorism and I think it's specifically Mm. about like Islamic terrorism and the way the characters in power use that like a character says fear always works oh okay yeah and that works yeah that's interesting that's the one that's the one that really struck me the most um I don't know I saw it as being uh, not even, I also didn't see it as being specifically about racism. I saw it as being about um, I, identity politics and the way that stereotypes come from that and can be used against people, but also identity politics can band people together, but then also the banding together can make them kind of blind to other things. I feel like, to me, right. the defining moment of the film is when the, the rabbit... Mm-hmm. Um, Judy Hopps. Judy Hopps who has been in identity politics terms, she's been the victim of a lot of things. And in the moment near the end, when she resorts to some stereotypes about the Jason Bateman character is the, it's, it's this realization there to to me, at least uh, it's the, the revelation that she's, she can be just as guilty uh, of making assumptions about others as everyone else has been about her the whole time that to me that's the thing that really resonated and w- I th- with me and that scene that you're talking about never worked for me narratively and it didn't didn't work for me this time it works thematically but i felt like the characters as created and written i feel like it wouldn't it didn't really fit especially his reaction to it that's not the point the point is oh yeah we have this it is too. yeah it's it's the same thing the movie but, is so visually beautiful it's rare i think for me to be like to be like really awed by an animated film like at this hmm. point animation can have, can do anything and it often does and it's that it's great i can be wowed but there's a difference between like being excited and genuine awe and like the way specifically the rainforest part the way that is rendered like with the fog and all that uh and and just all the different places in Zootopia, the, the city, uh, are just so beautifully realized. And it's the kind of thing that doesn't surprise me given that one of the creators of the film is Rich Moore, who came out of Futurama and Futurama is a show 
that will try to explore everything that it's depicting in that particular episode. And what mm-hmm. I and one thing that excites me is that in Zootopia, the city itself has like 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 eight or nine different sections. We only really see four of them. So if there is a sequel, which I think there could be because the film is very popular, I'm excited to see these other places. Yeah. And so that's the thing. While I do think that there's there, it's a bit muddled. I still enjoy a lot of the voice acting. I like the character work, and it's just a, it's just a really fun and I, as I said, beautiful film. I really I really do like it a lot. What's the um. I feel like I try to be a well-rounded moviegoer, but I feel like I, sh- I fall short when it comes to animation. I don't mm-hmm. watch very many animated movies. I guess especially I don't see new that ones. I, I only see like maybe f- three a year, maybe. I don't think I've seen a 2018 animated release. You've seen Incredibles 2. I saw right? Incredibles 2, and that might be it. I think the last animated movie I saw was Ferdinand. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you see Boss Baby? Uh, no, I did not see okay. Boss Baby. I don't know who I'm thinking of. But... Um, but yeah, so I, I I liked it, and good conversations came out of it with my students, um, and that's what it's all about. Oh, um, that's not true. I did see Isle of Dogs. Oh, sure. Um, but yeah, what else came out this year? Hotel Transylvania 3. Right. Teen Titans Go to the Movies just came out. I actually kind of want to see that. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. The reviews have me uh, uh, intrigued. Early Man, which the oh yeah, Aardvark, which is usually good, but I don't think it got great reviews. But it didn't get bad reviews either. Okay. Though. Like, uh, oof, Sherlock Gnomes, Peter Rabbit. Uh, Peter Rabbit made a ton of money though. Like, yeah. Not that that necessarily, of course, that doesn't mean that it's good, but like it's just yeah. The, and it's like, you and I are so outside the world of family films that like if certain studios put them out, we'll t- we'll pay attention. But when it's something like Peter Rabbit, I'm just like. Oh, it's a non thing <laughs> yeah, to yeah. me. Uh, I don't and think I've had a single co- conversation about Peter Rabbit yeah. before now. I had the conver- I the conversation I had was in my film marketing class at the time when she was talking about how like it's the kind of film there are some movies, Disney movies, Pixar movies, DreamWorks that are animated and they're quote unquote for kids, but there's a lot of adult appeal as well. But there are often movies that are just for kids and they're not even on our radar. And then yeah. when we look at the end of the year box office, we see that like Peter Rabbit is in like the top yeah. ten or something, and we're yeah. like, "How did that happen?" It's like, it's "Oh not, right, we're we're over five. But it's not. I think I also feel like us being like kind of snobbish. Like well, it's not just too. kids' movies. There's certain or, or TV show. Like when um, when Fox canceled all at once, canceled Brooklyn Nine Nine, Last Man on Earth, and The Mick. Mm-hmm. I was reading. Uh, an article that was like the Mick was a bit of a surprise because it was the highest rated of the three, and I was like, I don't know anyone who watches the Mick. Yeah, I've never like yeah. none of the reps websites I read ever like cover the Mick. I don't know anything. Yeah, about, I like cl- Caitlin Olson. Yeah, the closest I can come to it is that I was meaning to watch it <laughs> because I, I, I like Caitlin that. Olson. Yeah. All right. Um, moving on. Uh, my next two are actually going to be three because I'm going to cram in a short film here. Okay. I went to a night of films. Uh, by directed by Lois Weber, the um, uh, one of the major silent film directors, um, uh, and uh, yeah, there was. I would say the highlight. Uh, the movies we'll get to in a second. I would say the highlight of the night was the introduction by Carrie Beecham, who's a film historian. I don't know if you know her. Mm-hmm. Um, she introduces a lot of stuff at TCM Fest, which is sure. kind of how we got into like be familiar with her over the years. Um, and she gave a really great sort of rundown of Lois Weber's 
career and then also kind of took i guess the i don't know the establishment the gatekeepers or whatever to task for the fact that people even people like me who went to film school Mm -hmm. are like surprised at how many silent films in the 1910s were made by women yeah because that's it seems to have been papered over in a way like it was a big deal you Mm -hmm. know um and she sort of um she compared the industry to like that these directors ended up being like Rosie the Riveter after World War II, which is once like women, uh, there's a reason that, uh, the, you know, the movie industry was a place for women and for Jewish immigrants because they were barred from a lot of other places. And then when suddenly the movies became very profitable, then everyone wanted to be in. And then it kind of like these, these female directors kind of get, uh, so her and, uh, Alice Guy black or Guy Blaché mm-hmm. and that she's French. I'm not sure how you say no. probably Blaché. Um, uh, yeah, r- really fascinating stuff. And, uh, these movies, okay. Um, I'll start talking about the, the short film, which is called suspense. Uh, and it's amazing. Um, it's a great, uh, fantastic use of not only, uh, parallel editing and cross-cutting but also split screen um so it starts with uh uh there's a woman at home with her child and their nanny quits and then the father calls and is like hey i have to work late are you okay she's like yeah i'm okay and then a prowler starts prowling around the house and is trying to break in and so she like calls the husband there's someone trying to break in and then it cuts back and forth between her trying to keep the baby safe the guy trying to get in the house and the husband trying to rush home in time to save his wife mm-hmm. from this this guy who's going to come in and i guess presumably rape and murder i think that's yeah. that's the presumption um but david uh, what happens i have to know don't keep uh, me in uh, uh, <laughs> uh but it's fantastic and at one point there is actually a three-way split screen the the oh cool the the screen is split into like triangles where you're seeing like the 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 center you're seeing the guy like at his desk calling home and i think this is before she realizes yeah that there's a prowler so then in one the other one she's like holding the baby and talking to the phone and like the inner inner titles like yeah we'll be all right and then the third thing is the guy outside like finding that the oh yeah the whole thing is the nanny left the key under the mat and he finds it so that's how he gets in Mm. um uh it's really, really, really great. It also um, has a shot of a dude getting hit by a car that is really well done for 1915. <laughs> yeah. uh, the whole, the whole. Was, I, we saw it at the uh, Natalie and I went and saw it, and uh, the aforementioned Kyle Anderson was there. Mm-hmm. Um, saw it at the Egyptian, and the whole theater went oh <laughs> yeah. when when it happened. And I think it's just done with like uh, a telephoto lens and a brave actor who was willing to stand there and let the car get close enough to him that it looks like it hit him and then fall yeah. over. Uh, and then I looked online that so there's no credit like 1915, not everyone got credits yeah. all the time. Um, but someone online said the guy who almost gets hit by a car is, is Lon Chaney, like seven years before Phantom of the Opera. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe more than maybe like nine years before. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Um, it feels convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, but I guess there's a, if there's one actor you're not going to recognize when he's just him, <laughs> yeah. it's Lon Chaney. <laughs> Lon Chaney could probably have gone out to Ralph's yeah. and done his grocery shopping. Uh, <laughs> no one knew. Um, anyway, uh, so suspense was great. 
Did I ever tell you, uh, real quick, so for the, uh, the film history class that I TA'd for, we watched a clip from a silent film, an early, early silent film, and it was like The Beheading of Marie Antoinette. Oh, yeah. Have you seen it? No, but I know about it. It is like, you know, again, this was a room, uh, room full of like 300, you know, uh, college students who grew up watching yeah. you know, modern films. This thing, like, it's like the cut, like this axe, it's the, it is a real woman, like, right up until the moment, and the, the cut is genuinely seamless. I mean, the whole, like, right. the whole auditorium went like, ah, like, they made a noise. Everybody yeah, made a you noise. you see, uh, yeah, I, I need to see this, because I, I know you see like, an actual actress yeah. put her head through the thing, and then there's no visible cut and then her head gets cut off and then yeah. doesn't the executioner pick up the head and hold I, it up? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. And that's when you're like, well, that's probably not, that, that doesn't <laughs> no, look, that real. probably is. Well, yeah, but that probably is what happened. Oh, yeah. undoubtedly. Yes. Yes. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's kind of awesome. I've said it before, uh, that I think even film fans, uh, look back at early film with a certain type of, Oh, isn't that quaint? Uh, but every once in a while you see, you'll see something like that. And you're like, Oh, you know what? Son of a bitch. You got me. Uh, and you realize that things it. were a lot more complex than, than we thought. Yeah. Um, so the next film, the first feature length film, by which I mean, it was like 52 minutes or whatever, uh, is, and this is so suspense does not seem to be as good as it is. It's not Lois Weber's bread and butter. Her bread and butter was, uh, social issue films or what I'm going to go ahead and call sermons. Uh, so this one is called hypocrites and it's really fascinating (laughs) in that it tells parallel stories, um, using the same four actors once in like the medieval time, medieval times and ones in the present day. Mm -hmm. Um, and like the one guy plays a, uh, he plays a priest in both versions in the first one. Like they're all a bunch of priests and then he's, creating a statue like uh, artistic thing and he reveals it and it's uh the name of the statue is truth but everyone is scandalized because it's a naked woman ah. people can't handle the truth literally yeah and then um they kill him uh and then it sort of like goes to the present day where there's a present day pastor played by the same guy or a priest or whatever um giving a sermon about hypocrisy and truth and the his congregation can't handle it. Um, and all this happens pretty early on. And then it sort of goes into this thing where it's both at, at once where oh, the, uh, so it becomes an extended allegory and in this into the realm of, of metaphor, um, where the priest, he's, I guess both priests at once, the figure of truth, uh, a naked woman. This was also apparently a very controversial film at the time because sure. it has a full on naked woman walking around for most of the second half of the movie, uh, but all in double exposure exposure. Mm-hmm. And it's really fascinating double exposure in the sense that like he and she are moving, like walking through the, yeah. the, the, the frame together mm-hmm. and like keeping the double exposure. Uh, it's really, really well done. Um, uh, and it has a extended allegories and then she's, she sort of becomes kind of like a ghost of Christmas present where she's taking him to show all these different examples of, um, of hypocrisy. And I think, you know, uh, this is what I was saying to Natalie after the movie, like, um, you were talking about like seeing films at a distance and then there's also the issue when you, that I, and I, I, I talked about it before because I'm 
a social justice warrior type uh when social issues come up in old movies i talk about them not holding up or whatever or like being awkward this one is i was talking about uh what i said to natalie was like a lot of that stuff didn't translate by which i don't mean it doesn't hold up i mean literally i didn't understand quite what she was talking about Mm. because it's like very specific to the era some of it i understood where it's but even then it's like uh the, the the hypocrisy is like uh parents are wondering why their kids are getting sick but it's because they're eating too many sweets and knowing about sex too young is that what it is like that's the other thing is lois weber seems like a real scold um, <laughs> <laughs> um she, surprisingly for someone who was willing to court controversy by putting a naked lady in half of her movie she seems like a real church lady type uh, in, in her in her morals um uh but yeah, there's so many beautiful shots with the special effects and then the, the color tinting, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a part where truth leads, uh, Gabriel is the priest's name up the, up this hill. All the other townspeople are walking on this easy path mm-hmm. and then she leads him up, a a hill that's a rougher path they have to climb, but it's to, to truth or to greater whatever it, it it's, the allegory is pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, and then, so you just see like the townspeople walk by and some of them deciding to go off the path and some of them just had to stay on the easy path. And then some of them like couples where the wife will be like, let's go up here. And the husband's like, no, no, no. Um, hmm. uh, but then they get up to the top and it overlooks like the, um, you know, she, these were made in, in Southern California. So it's clearly overlooking the Pacific ocean, this beautiful. And then like the tinting is green and Gabriel's, uh, uh, the actor who plays the priest is kind of a special effect in himself. And because he's sort of this gaunt hangdog look and he's got these priestly robes on and he's like standing there on the hill above the, the ocean. Uh, very, very cool stuff even if i couldn't necessarily get behind all of it yeah. not necessarily again not that i don't she starts like denouncing a specific city council or something like <laughs> right that. and there's a, there's a whole thing about uh you you as someone who knows the uh the bible <laughs> i think this is from the bible um might have gotten this reference but i had to look it up later which is the moat in the eye do you know about the moat in the eye oh yeah, moat yeah. In the eye of god or whatever yeah, yeah. so i I didn't understand what that section was about at all. Okay. I kind of had to go look at it up afterwards and it kind of made sense, but even then not really, it's really specific. Okay. Let's move on to the third. Okay. There was actually in between hypocrites in this next one. They also showed, I'm not going to really talk about this and I'll tell you why they showed like three out of seven reels of a restored Lois Weber movie called what do men want? And Natalie and I were both like, I don't feel like watching a partial movie. Let's stay. Yeah. So we were like, let's, watch enough to sort of get an idea of the restoration. That's nice. And then because we're at the Egyptian, we'll go to the pig and whistle and have a drink and then come back in time for the final feature. Uh, so yeah, I didn't really watch any of, uh, uh, much of what do men want except to say that, yeah, the transfer looks nice. I saw five minutes at the beginning, five minutes at the end. Um, and then, uh, so the final one is called where are my children, which is a, um, a movie about abortion and a movie that is, uh, um, stridently uh pro-life i don't know if that was a term i don't think that only pro-life was used back then um but uh and it does i mean to her credit in the early scenes because it's so it's about a the main couple are the one guy's a district attorney and he's actually prosecuting a case against um someone who has it's for uh 
I don't know what you would call it in 1916 terms or whatever, but uh, distributed literature that's pro-abortion. Uh, they don't even really say abortion. They call yeah. it birth control, but they mean abortion. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Uh, and so you get, and so he's, and, and they don't have kids together. He he wants kids very badly, and he's against this guy who's pro-abortion. Meanwhile, we find out that she is the society lady, and the reason she doesn't have kids is because she keeps having an abortion, having abortions because she wants to keep partying with all her friends and all her friends. She and all her friends keep going to this doctor um, so they can keep going to each other's parties all the time. So, first off. And so at the beginning, you do get the guys. Do you know testimony. who Jack Chick is? Uh, oh, of okay, course yeah. I know who Jack Chick is. <laughs> I'm getting a vibe yeah, here. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So at the beginning, you do get. She, I feel like she does give some sort of uh, respect to the arguments for, um, you know, why should a, why should a child suffer because they were brought into a world sure. by people who didn't want them and weren't, aren't, weren't able to take care of them, sure. you know, and like, like that. But then most of the rest of the movie is just this, um, uh, really again, scolding, uh, depiction of this selfish society woman who just cares about her, her, her daytime parties and her drinking. And, uh, um, and then like, she finally realizes the errors are error for ways, but it's too late as the title card says, <laughs> having perverted nature so many times, she is no longer able to wear the diadem of motherhood. Nobody talks about diadems anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Except, uh, what's in Harry Potter. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's actually what I picture as I picture, <laughs> uh, who is it in the movie? Kelly McDonald. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so this one isn't uh, where my children is. I think there's a lot of just there's a lot of filmmaking skill um, that we normally associate with D.W. Griffith at the time, but there was clearly also there in Lois Weber. So where my children's never boring. It's I mean yeah. it's also only a little over an hour long, um, and exceptionally well made. Uh, but I definitely enjoyed Hypocrites more. Um, just because it was so much more adventurous. Oh, but there is a thing that where my children does, um, she visually sort of imagines, uh, unborn babies as like cherubs in heaven. And every time a woman gets pregnant, that cuts to this sort of fantasy sequence of a cherub being like called down Hmm. from heaven and then placed on like a pillar and lowered toward the earth. Um, it is very, it's very, very cool looking. Uh, yeah, I'm really uh, excited about Lois Weber. I know I have um, at home. I have the uh, and I haven't watched all of it. Um, uh, Flicker Alley a couple years ago put out a, a Blu-ray of early women filmmakers, mostly mm-hmm. silent um, films by by women, and it has it has another Lois Weber on there called The Blot that wasn't uh, wasn't at the the Egyptian. So I'm eager to watch that now. Um, I count myself a big Lois Weber fan now. All right, that's exciting. Um, okay. So, uh, as a, this is another rewatch, it's a film I've seen many, many times, but it's been a while. Uh, the other day I was in my office doing work, getting work done. And then Jen from the other room said, Hey, you want to, you want to watch the wizard of Oz? 
I was like, yeah, all right. And so I just stopped what I was doing and I got way behind on work because Jen and I watched the wizard of Oz. Um, she was just in the mood for it, I guess. Uh, and it's fine. I actually was as well because I've been showing uh, a clip from it for the last few weeks, um, in talking about, uh, early examples of color and that sort of thing. But what's interesting is while I was talking about Wizard of Oz to my students, I happened to just throw something out there. I'm sure I'm not the uh, I'm pretty sure I'm late to the party here. But in I was talking about the idea that, like, we can't really understand now what it would be like to watch the Wizard of Oz at the time, Hmm. because it's not merely look at this, you know, look at this beautiful color or anything. It's literally like here's Dorothy and she's living with her aunt and uncle. You don't really know where her mom and dad went. Uh, but you know, there's, there's like farmhands and stuff and they're just kind of, you get the impression they're all just kind of scraping by. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, and this came out in 39, like tail end of the depression, but also there was no guarantee the depression was going to end anytime soon. Yeah. They don't know that at the tail end. Right. Yeah. And so, and this idea of there's no place like home, like what must that have been like for people in the depression who have just gotten so tired of, of living a certain way and just trying to scrape by and then movies providing some kind of escape. And then they see this one and real life is this sepia tone type of thing. And then they go to this wonderful place, Mm. Oz and Dorothy just comes back and in a way, and, and, and we want her to, we want her to return back to her, her family because that's who she loves. But there is like, I found myself wondering, like in a way you almost wonder if it was, if it was like the film was sponsored by the government or something like that, because it says, Hey, look, I know times are tough, but wouldn't you rather be here than anywhere else here with your family and your loved ones? Like, don't, don't go anywhere. Certainly don't go to Soviet Russia. Um, you know, (laughs) I don't think Oz is supposed to be Soviet Russia, but um, it's just something that was on my mind as I was watching the film. So I was trying to put myself in the mindset of somebody at the time Mm. watching the movie, putting that aside, Wizard of Oz is so fucking great. (laughs) Like it is, (laughs) I haven't seen it in a long time. It is, you know, the music is really good, of course, but the performances, I'll say that, uh, I don't think I really have had an appreciation for Judy Garland as a performer and she is really marvelous and just, she's so delightful and just everything about her is just so young and naive. And, and I really enjoy her and all of the other performers, you know, Bert Lahr and Jack Haley and, and, uh, Ray Bolger as the, the, her friends in, in Oz and as the, the farmhands. Um, it's you just get the impression that it was just so much fun for everybody to make. And then Frank Morgan who plays the wizard and five other characters, everything he does is delightful. And when he, and something I certainly didn't understand when I was a kid is when you get to the wizard and you realize not only is he a sham, but he is very cynical. (laughs) Like he just says, uh, you know, when he's talking to the scarecrow and he says, he says, well, I mean, plenty of people with no brains do plenty of talking and, and thinking uh, in some of the greatest universities of all time, but they've got something you don't have, a diploma. And so he just <laughs> hands, them a, he hands them a diploma. <laughs> it's really, That's it's hilarious. hilarious. And so it's, uh, it's a really, uh, of course, it's a marvelous film. Yeah. But it just, the way that it moves and 
flying monkeys are creepy as hell and i just really it's a movie that i i feel like i will having now watched it again for the first time in a while now that i'm older i feel like it's something that i will return to over and over again because it is something that i it's it's unapologetically on a sound stage you know right. uh just and such beautiful uses of matte paintings and the and you can see like you know our friends like r- walking down the yellow brick road and getting closer and closer to what we know is a wall and it's like uh-huh. we better we better fade out because <laughs> bad things are about to happen sure enough we do uh but it really is just a a wonderful experience i got a chance several years ago to see it uh, on the big screen at the arc light and i was very glad that i did uh and i haven't seen it since then so it's probably been about eight or nine years since i saw it and uh yeah it it not only holds up but i think it's something that i have a deeper appreciation for now uh as as a as a as a grown-up all right um I realized I was wrong. I have nine movies to talk about, but one of them is an overlap with you. So, uh, anyway. All right. So, uh, I also had rewatched a musical. Okay. I rewatched the sound of music for the first time since I was a little kid. So much so that I almost want to count it as seeing it for the first time. Sure. I, I certainly remembered all the songs, but I didn't really remember much of the of the story. I definitely don't think as a little kid the Nazi stuff like really sank in yeah. to me, um, uh, which is uh, which which is terrific. Um, I love Christopher Plummer's, uh, you know, uh, pro Austrian patriotism when he tells the. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it, there's the one pro-German guy and he says, I'm sure when the Germans come in, you'll be the lead trumpet player or whatever yeah. in the parade. And he said, Oh, you flatter me. He's like, Oh, how clumsy of me. I meant to accuse you. Yeah. Uh, great line. <laughs> um, but what really stuck with me is a, a, the performances are great. B the songs are great, which we knew, but the staging of these songs, this is a movie that is, uh, a lot, large parts of it are unlike Wizard of Oz, very much not on a sound stage. This mm-hmm. is a very like big on location yeah. musical. Um, that uh, I mean, I hate that I think this way, but in today's terms, it must have been massively expensive to make this movie. Sure. It is an enormous spectacle of a movie. Um, and I feel like, you know, when we, when we say that, about movies now we're talking about and this isn't a complaint this is just how things are different we're talking uh, when we talk about spectacle we're often talking about special effects or visual effects mm-hmm. or things like that but just the idea of having a huge cast um of of actors and just of extras everywhere which yeah. you see very very rarely anymore these days there's so much like if you see like a crowd sure. scene it'll just be you know cgi like or or whatever um uh, the idea of getting like 1500 extras together to stand around just to give a place, uh, give uh, some weight to a place wearing period clothing and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's not that much of that anymore. And it's, uh, it's really, really impressive. And it just felt like, it just feels like Robert Wise is like just in the zone. Like he can do nothing wrong. The fact that he's staging multi-part, like choreographed musical numbers that take place, there's cuts in between there's like elliptical editing in between uh where they're going from the fields to the river to the carriages and then like he's choreographing the do re mi song like yeah. while they're on the moving like horse carriage it's like uh and it, it all seems to go so perfectly robert wise is kind of an unsung hero uh of hollywood i mean yeah okay so he was the editor for citizen kane he directed right. the day the earth stood still 
Yeah. He made West Side Story, yeah. one best director for that. He made Sound of Music, one best director for that. So like he's he went he made the first Star Trek movie. He's made and he made several others, like notable film not that that necessarily means anything. Yeah, but I don't know, maybe that last Star Trek movie is what did it for him. Or that first Star Trek movie sure, is what sure. did it for him. What, what did him in. That's a that's a dull movie. <laughs> yeah, but I, what I mean to say is that like that's not a small thing knowing what we know now about star Trek and how big it was going to be. Um, and the fact that, you know, he's the one that ultimately approved Jerry Goldsmith's music for it, which would then be used as the theme song for next generation. Oh, Um, okay. But anyway, but it's just, he was such a, to me, like Robert, like Robert Wise and maybe like Michael Curtiz are like the best arguments for just because somebody's a journeyman, Oh sure. Yeah. Doesn't mean that they're forgettable or that their movies are forgettable or that they're not worth looking into. Like as a craftsman, Robert Wise is is up there with with the best with of them. The and, best, and yeah. Sound of Music like when I first saw it, which was only a few years ago. Um I did not expect that I was going to enjoy it, but it is a thoroughly enjoyable movie. And yeah. when adjusted for inflation, I believe it's still in the top 10 wow. movies of all time. Like it it made crazy money. Uh, and then next up for me, I watched the new Kirby Dick documentary. Um, it's called The Bleeding Edge. It's on Netflix. Uh, oh, and I was just uh, looking through uh, Netflix and I saw that and I didn't know what it was. Yeah, well, you know, Kirby Dick is a muckraker uh, of the highest order. I, that's, I mean, that is a compliment. Mm-hmm. Um, this time he has taken on uh, the excuse me, the medical device industry, which is not something that I really think about. Uh, but now, uh, it's horrifying that, um, so medical devices as opposed to drugs, or right. these are medical devices or things like implants or whatever mm-hmm. are also regulated by the FDA, but the regulations and the processes, um, are so minimal compared to, to drugs. Basically, the thing he really zeroes in on early on is the idea that to get a medical device approved, mm-hmm. they they wrote in this thing where it's like, well, if it's similar enough to a medical device that already exists, it doesn't need to go through the testing process. And so what ended up supposed to, it was supposed to be an exception to the rule. And at this point, like over like 90% of medical devices are, have never been tested on people before hmm. before they go into the field, yeah. uh, and so that's why we had a, a thing where um, hip replacements or other like joint replacements that were made from cobalt. Well, certain people, it turns out, go insane from cobalt poisoning. Uh, now it is something once you remove from the body, they can recover. Thank God. Okay. Yeah. But uh, there was one guy who's a doctor himself, uh, and also he's a doctor in, Al- in Alaska. And he's also an avid cycler and his hip started to go out. So he got this replacement and then, um, became like started to lose his mind and had a breakdown during a conference. I can't remember what city he was in, but like destroyed his hotel room and like wrote on the walls in soap and like went nuts. Um, and then luckily figured out why had it removed and replaced. And and he's one of the main talking heads in the movie. Um, the other thing, they, uh, I would say, um, the, I would say the majority of the time is spent on a, um, uh, a thing called eShore, which is a thing that, uh, women can use in place of like a hysterectomy or whatever to, mm-hmm. uh, basically like to say I'm done. Um, yeah. and part of the deal with it is that, it, I mean, it creates 
scar tissue that um, that seals up the fallopian tubes. Mm-hmm. And the thing with the scar tissue is, if something goes wrong with it, it's very difficult to remove. Mm-hmm. And so these pieces of metal end up all over the like the woman's body, and they try to take it out, and it breaks, and then they get uh. metal all over, and they end up having. It, you wouldn't even believe the amount of like chain reaction of uh, things you wouldn't even think have anything to do with the fallopian tube. She ends up having like the one woman ends up ha- like had to have surgery on her knees and elbows, like because it just ends up breaking down throughout the body. This woman talks about how she's had a uh, headache for 11 years straight. It's like, she was like, it's better during the day, but at night, uh, sometimes I have to like put a cold pack on my head and shut off all the lights. Uh, and, it's uh, it's some uh, very very upsetting uh, stuff, which is what Kirby Dick wants it to be. Um, yeah. So it's effective, and I will definitely, if I ever get to the point, someday I'll might I might need some sort of device implanted. I'll, I'm going to do my research first. Yeah. Uh, because no one else is apparently. And I wonder, does he talk about like I imagine it would be difficult to test them in a way like for example the cobalt thing like that's something that happens over time well like if like if you take a pill yeah within a few days i imagine they know whether it's a it's a bad thing or not uh yeah yeah and that's the, yeah Eshore i think actually was tested on women but that's one thing that one of the people talks about is that the testing window is too short that, okay. like and and too small a group so they tested it on like uh you know, a thousand women for a year and a half. And that just like, didn't, you know, it, it didn't produce the level you of, of the amount of information you should have seen, which is yeah. now, um, and there is a, so within, within the time the movie was made, they show that, uh, the European union bans Eshore, And then the title card, I guess is a mild spoiler, but whatever. It's not a, narrative type movie uh at the end of the movie so apparently since the movie since the movie initially premiered earlier this year and now bear has said they are taking Eshore off the market by the end of 2018 hmm. so uh there's a victory for for kirby dick and especially for these uh women who've been suffering like crazy but there's um uh there's stuff i mean you you were like shocked by some of the stuff I was saying. There are things that some women go through in this movie and men, but especially, especially, uh, the women, um, that, uh, I spent a lot of the time, like a horror movie that's covering my mouth, like, mm-hmm. um, in shock, uh, at some of the, uh, physical repercussions of, of these things. Uh. So, yeah, uh, it's on Netflix. Check it out. The Bleeding Edge. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> um, okay, so you sounded like Byron Allen. Yeah. Do you ever watch? Anyway, okay. Uh, I watched. Okay, I was curious. So I watched David M. Rosenthal's How It Ends. Okay. Do you know? Do you know no, the, I don't. the film? It's. Uh, it's. I don't know if it's a Netflix original or they just bought it. Um, but it features what's his name? It's Theo something. Um, Huxtable. Theo, it is Theo Huxtable. I know that's not his name, but that's how I, that's how I know him in my heart. Uh, no, it's Theo James from the Divergent series. Okay. Um, and uh, Forrest Whitaker. And so it's about this. Uh, uh, Theo James is dating Forrest Whitaker's daughter. Uh, he and his he and the daughter live in Seattle and. Uh, Forrest Whitaker and his wife live in Chicago. And so Theo James goes back to Chicago to like ask permission for, you know, ask for the blessing to like 
marry the woman that he incidentally has uh, knocked up, which he knows his father's not going to be thrilled about that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and Forrest Whitaker is kind of a hard ass about it. And then, uh, they discover that, and then something terrible happens on the, on the West coast, like maybe an earthquake, you know, they're kind of, they're not sure at first what happened, but it causes mm. massive blackout. And so, and there's, they can't fly back or anything like that. And so Theo James and Forrest Whitaker like hit the road and start heading back to Seattle and they run across, you know, various, uh, bad things along the way. So, Okay. Not a bad premise, mm-hmm. and Forrest Whitaker always, is always interesting, and he's interesting in this movie. He's he's a, an incredibly watchable actor, and I think visually they're doing some interesting things. They make everything look a little bit brown and kind of ugly at times. But it's I don't know. It's it's shot in, in a way that I think is interesting. But I think it's trying to do it's trying to do everything at once. I would say it's trying to have its cake and eat it too, and I. Here's here's essentially what's happening is that it's showing the beginning of like an apocalyptic and I don't want I don't want to spoil anything so I'll speak vaguely. It's showing like the beginnings of an apocalyptic situation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, these guys <clears throat> they run across people who like uh, try to steal their car or like people that threaten them and and that sort of thing um, and. We've seen this before in like apocalyptic movies, but usually like after a while, you know, the apocalypse okay. has happened right? and now people are resorting to something and have resorted to something. But this would have it would have would have us believe that it's happening like a day later. Mm-hmm. And I don't buy it. I don't I don't believe it. I feel like I understand. I love the idea of showing the early stages of this. Um, I think that's one of the appeals of like the first purge is how would people respond because they still want to keep civilization going. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, Oh shoot, we have to give up on some things. We have to give up on, on some ideals. Seeing that slowly dawn on somebody is something that's really interesting to me, but I think the film doesn't have the patience for that. I think it jumps to the apocalyptic thing too quickly and it's not as though it it turns into a mad max film or anything like that everybody's still dressed like this and and all that but i don't know it just it felt rushed and then also frankly the dialogue's not that great especially when it comes to exposition uh force whitaker's a pro so he can sell it of course um and so the film is not it was not well received but i was curious as to why and now i I haven't read anybody else's reviews. I don't know if this is something that bothers them, but it, it definitely bothered me. It just, I understood what it was, what I think it was trying to do and I respect what it was trying to do, but then it didn't actually do it. Um, at least not in a way that I thought worked. So yeah, it's, uh, it's not a good, no, it, I wouldn't say it's worth watching for Forrest Whitaker. Uh, he's definitely a highlight. I'd say the, the primary highlight. Um, but yeah, it's not quite worth it for that. Okay. Um, another rewatch for me. Um, I rewatched Natalie and I rewatched, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's the birds. Okay. Which I hadn't seen in a long time. It was, um, I think I had long thought of it as my least favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie. It might still be, Mm -hmm. but I think, um, I did at least appreciate what a strange, strange movie (laughs) it is. Um, because of the choice to use no music mm-hmm. 
And also on top of that, the choice for it to be such a slow burn. I think that's what I hadn't remembered. Yeah. Is that like, uh, I mean, you get little things like the seagull that hits her even, but even that's yeah. pretty far into the movie by the time that uh, she's on the lake. But like the birds don't really start attacking until yeah. almost a halfway point, like almost an hour into the movie. It's like 50 minutes in is when they, I guess, like yeah. when the, uh, like the kid's birthday party, I think is the, um, the, the first big one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like 50 minutes in. Um, uh, and, uh, and so because of those two choices together, it has just this weird, eerie, like, and not intentionally eerie. I don't, I think it is intentional, but it's like, they're just having these conversations that are about, it's a, it's a love story, I guess, mm-hmm. but about two people who, are, as far as I can tell, are insane. <laughs> Because they meet because this guy recognizes a woman that he doesn't like from the newspapers in a pet store and decides to like play a prank on her, Mm -hmm. I guess. And then she, based on that five minute, uh, 10 minute, maybe not even 10 minute conversation in which they actually, uh, Tippy Hedren and Rod Taylor, right. Um, from inglorious bastards. Um, (laughs) uh, they do have a lot of chemistry in that moment, but based on that alone, she goes to such great lengths to like get him back, I guess, yeah. by giving him some birds that she like buys two birds and a cage and then drives like two hours <laughs> up, uh, up the coast to leave it and then try to leave again. Yeah. It's like, what, what do you, what do you do for yeah, what do you do? Oh, well, that's the thing. She's well, like an heiress. She yeah, doesn't yeah. do anything. Yeah. She's like a newspaper heiress or whatever. That's right. Um, uh, and so I'm like, I, I'm like seeing, and then she like is talking to Suzanne, Suzanne Pilchette, who's mm. also crazy, I guess, because she was dating Rod Taylor. The, this is the backstory with Suzanne yeah. Pilchette character that she and Rod Taylor were dating. He brought her home. Her mother didn't like her. Yeah. So he broke things off, but she just decided to stay in this tiny town where his mother and sister live nah. and become the school teacher. So then, and live like across the, the bay from him. Uh, the I whole, remember liking her character quite a bit. I, like I just like the performance. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, she is, she is good. I mean, she's, but she's weird. She's a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause she, a, I mean, she rearranged her whole life to be near someone who, broke up with her, but not to get back together with him. She's like friends with his mom now. Yeah. (laughs) And then, and his his mom's Jessica Tandy, right? Yeah. And his sister is Veronica Cartwright. That was the part I had forgotten that I totally forgot that young Veronica Cartwright. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, poor Veronica Cartwright. She can't catch a break. And she also like, she clearly established in this, in alien, and in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, she's the woman reacting hysterically. Yeah. <laughs> it is kind of a, a bummer that she, like, uh, uh, found that niche. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, um, I like Veronica Cartwright. Um, she was in, uh, is it Veronica Cartwright? I think she was in an episode of CSI okay. that's, like, a weirdly star-packed episode. I think it's her, Ray Wise, a then unknown Amanda Seyfried. Okay. And a pre weight loss, Chris Hardwick. (laughs) Um, do you remember that there was a time? So he was like, there was a time because there, there was like, uh, singled out and shipmates. Yeah. He was like a thin guy, but then like 
late nineties, like or maybe it was like early mid two thousands. Yeah, he kind of beefed up a little bit. I guess. But yeah, I don't think anybody would ever look at him and say like, "Oh, look who's that fat guy." No, but, but he, compared to what he was and, and what, what he, he is, is now, now, yeah, like he's a noticeably thin guy. Yeah, and so it is weird that. Uh, um, and also, yeah, he and he steals a truck from. Uh, one of my favorite things about watching CSI um, is that it's supposed to be in Las Vegas and they mm-hmm. sh- occasionally shoot in Las Vegas, but it's the San Fernando Valley and yeah. I love noticing places. So do you know the coffee shop Frank's on Olive and oh, yeah. Buena Vista has yeah. a big, you can't miss it. Yeah. The enormous sign that says Frank's um, Chris Hardwood's character steals a truck with all the CSI evidence in it because if I'm remembering the episode correctly, <laughs> He steals it because he thinks Amanda Seyfried is the murderer and he has a crush on her. And so he knows that the CSI guys have all the evidence. So when they stop for breakfast, he steals the truck to like try and save her. But then it turns out she didn't do it. I don't know. It's been a long time, but it's a crazy episode. Yeah. (laughs) Um, anyway, back to the birds. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say except that it's super weird, but then, it's really effective once the birds start showing up. The uh, I mean, some of the initial bird attacks with the um, some of it obviously being like composite shots. You sure. know, when it's Jessica Tandy like waving her arms, and it's like, okay, maybe there's one bird in that room, <laughs> yeah. but everything else is just a yeah. fake composite. Like that's a little bit. Once they're in the house at the end, and it become and it like, and I'm like, oh, this is signs. <laughs> this is what signs was doing. Well, and it's uh, it's a slow burn, but it's not. But like. It's a slow burn, but the 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 action packed part happens uh, before the climax. The climax is very quiet. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah, I love yeah. that. Um, and that and that, uh, you know, I'm not the first one to say this, but that jungle gym sequence is r- so yeah impactful. I love when they're all in the restaurant and like the different people in the town who have witnessed different things are taking this different levels of seriously. It's a great, great like group group acting scene. Um, and also I've been, I've been meaning to rewatch watch this for like eight years because eight years ago I went to Bodega Bay, yeah. uh, or like my family or some of my family, including my wife, um, then girlfriend, um, I don't know why I feel it's necessary to point out, um, but I always do. If a story takes place before you're married, I'll be like, yeah, no, she was my I, girlfriend at the time. I yes. don't know why. That's uh, I do the same thing. It's um, fine. Anyway, um, but you don't have as many stories like that because you've been married way longer than you dated. That's true. Yes. Um, anyway, uh, so we went and stayed in Dillon Beach, which is the on the south end of the bay. Um, Bodega Bay is at the north end. But we went up to Bodega Bay and actually ate at the Tides restaurant, which is... I don't even think it's the same building, much less the same layout as it is right. in the movie. And I'm sure the interior in the movie is a soundstage, I'm sure. Sure. Uh, but the exterior, um, I think, is a different building now. But it's still called the Tides Restaurant, which is what it was called in the movie. And they have pictures of Tippi Hedren everywhere. Oh, sure. Um, and so I've been meaning to watch it for eight years, which is why I borrowed your Blu-ray about two years ago. <laughs> and it's been sitting behind my television. And now it's back home. Yeah. When you or it's ex- actually, this Blu-ray has never been to this house before. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. You you didn't live here yet when I borrowed that Blu-ray. Oh, wow. I'm not joking when I said it's almost. I'll I have think, to show it around. I think it'll be two years in October, I think, because I think it was Halloween of 2016 that I was like, 
I want to watch the birds for Halloween this year. And then never got around to it. And then it sat behind my TV for almost two years. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that might beat your record for me. Cause you had my in the mood for love for over a year once. Yes. But I, I think for this quite is at like 22 months wow, or I 21 months. That. This is, I think I beat your record. Um, okay. Those are my two, right? Did I do two? Uh, no, I didn't. No, you have one. Uh, yeah. the next one, but the next one is your next one. Yeah. Which is uh, Mark Forster's Christopher Robin. Indeed. Um, which I knew. Fair, I mean, I obviously knew that it was a Winnie the Pooh movie. I intentionally, I didn't watch any trailers. I didn't, mm. I didn't realize that it's essentially hook. It's the same basic premise as hook. Um, and I think in With some, some Mary Poppins thrown in there um, as well, by the way, uh, I haven't seen Mary Poppins in a long time either. I should uh, rewatch that one too. Um, and I think it is in some ways better than Hook and in some ways worse than Hook. Uh, I think I mostly didn't like it, but I also mostly don't like Hook, um, which I know you're a Hook defender, right? Not particularly. Sorry. At the moment, I'm just cringing at the person honking their horn outside. Oh, I thought it was an alarm going off, but no, that is yeah, someone honking their horn. That's just a fucking asshole. Um, uh, I'm, prepared, I'm better, better suited to your neighborhood than you are because this stuff doesn't bother me as much. Well, I hate everybody. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, but I guess I also hate everybody, but I don't let it get to me anymore. I'm not surprised. Mm, I guess there's that, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so yeah. Uh, wow, they really are still honking. I, yeah. I wish you hadn't brought, drawn my I'm attention sorry. to it because I was blocking it out before. What are they trying What are they trying to do? I don't know. I almost want to take a break so I can go out and say, like, the, the ice cream truck, hey, it's summertime. Uh-huh. It comes by oddly late uh in the evening but that one i'm not gonna tell him hey knock it off but like this i think it's done i think i think they've stopped thankfully okay um so yeah i mostly i would say didn't like chris for robin i'd maybe give it a c um uh yeah maybe even c minus more than i think and i think about it i like the stuff with the actual hundred acre woods characters like i like them being goofy, being, you know, being piglet and poo yeah. and like, yeah, not, goofy, not, goofy's not, not in the film. Uh, yeah. And no, I was never, even as a kid, I wasn't a really big Tigger fan. I know he always uh, stressed me out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I did always like Eeyore. Um, <laughs> the, and they nailed him on this. Like, I think they, I think they gave him some really good stuff. <laughs> yeah. What I, I think what I, I was able to pinpoint what made me laugh about him in this, which was, whatever like he would jump to the extreme immediately like uh-huh. the moment he fell on the floor he's like this is where i belong and just like it's like okay he didn't even <laughs> take he a moment like he doesn't say like slow. that yeah and brad yeah. garrett does a good eeyore yeah um so i liked all that stuff but i think the actual story of the movie is so boilerplate and the way that the character is developed and the way that the character quote-unquote grows is so telegraphed and literalized like they, yeah. they're constantly saying exactly what you know there's all like he says to Pooh, he's like i'm not a kid i'm an adult now with adult responsibilities and yeah. Pooh says you're christopher robin i'm like that's uh, the, what i said in my review was like that's that line sounds like it was made for the trailer and should have been cut out of the feature sure. <laughs> um it's and do, i mean do you see who wrote this thing <laughs> yeah alex ross perry thomas mccarthy and allison schrader who wrote uh, hidden figures yeah 
Those are Alex three. Ross Perry. Yeah. And Tom McCarthy, who like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I saw the cobbler. But that's what I'm saying. He's done studio-ish type yeah, yeah. stuff before, I guess. But yeah. I think of him as not an obvious writer. Um No, but I think his um his narratives tend to follow a uh, a certain conventional arc more than sure. Alex Ross Perry says. Although Alex, Alex Ross Perry, I guess, is most of what he does is paying homage to other things. Uh, sure. Or maybe not. That, that's unfair. But a lot yeah. of what he does is paying homage. So he's just paying homage to bad movies in this one. I, I really expected this to be. Once I saw that, once I saw who was who were the writers i remember th- i like my expectations went up because i thought like okay there's going to be some cleverness to this i think what you the best thing i can say about it and it's not a small thing is that i really think they captured the voices of the characters that we know like i think they nailed eeyore i think they i think they got winnie the pooh Very pretty much right. oh yeah and he has some great yeah uh, him um, my wife and I could not stop laughing at him uh, wanting a balloon. Oh, it's when they're, so they're rushing to make the train, yeah. he's like, "Oh, may I have a balloon?" Uh, yeah. He's like, "We're in a big rush." But I would very much like a balloon. <laughs> <laughs> it would make me very happy. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's uh, and Jim Cummings, who's been the voice of Winnie the Pooh for many years, yeah. uh, just uh, really nails it. And one of a, a thing that he will do at various uh, comic conventions is he will say Darth Darth Vader lines uh. in the Pooh voice, and it is uh, quite delightful. Um, and but, he also does Tigger. Um, yeah, and he does it. That's a good yeah. Tigger too. But do you know that apparently Chris O'Dowd did the voice of? Tigger and it didn't test well, and so they had Jim Cummins, Cummings, who has done Tigger yeah. almost as long as he's been doing Pooh, go in and re-record everything. Apparently, Chris O'Dowd was Tigger. Hmm. That it is interesting because Jen and I were talking about uh, the fact that uh, that they decided to go a little bit, with the exception of of Pooh, and then we and then we realized Tigger. They're like nobody else. I guess Eeyore, but like. They decided to go British with a lot of the characters, yeah. which makes sense. Which makes sense. But the um, voices that we've known because yeah. of Disney for however yeah. long. Like Peter Capaldi as Rabbit is weird. Yeah. Um, and Toby Jones as Owl. Owl you know, and it's Sophie Okanito yeah, as, as Kanga. Uh, Kanga. I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right, but yeah, I like her. And I, I think they all did a, a perfectly fine job. But, it's, but, you know, clearly we're meant to focus on Pooh, Piglet, Eeyore, and Tigger. Yeah. Um, and I think they did them really well. I think the designs, of the, yeah, the everything hundred acre wood is great and from the characters to the settings. So like Al's house that is crashed and all that. Yeah. But I don't like the color palette. I feel like one of my big problems, I think, and this is, um, sorry, I just wrote my review this afternoon because the embargo, we're, we're lucky we recorded these movie journals late on Thursday because the embargo yeah. didn't go up till, didn't lift till 7 PM. Huh. Um, which is like, well, you know that you were at the screening. You heard the announcement, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, which is like, I know I'm not saying nice things about the film, but it's not usually that means they have a, like a, 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 a pile of garbage on their hands. It's yeah. not that, but like I can the, see a lot of people liking this. Yeah. Movie. This is a crowd pleaser um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it's weird. The embargo was so late, but um, anyway, what, the, what I said that one thing that I think hook does better is that it better delineates like the real world and the fantasy sure. world here. I feel like, uh, it it never really made sense where the line was. And so it never seemed like his, yeah. 
it never seemed like Christopher Robin's abandonment of the hungry hunger, hundred acre wood was as complete as Peter's abandonment of, of, of Neverland in, in hook. Yeah. Or the difference between Kansas and Oz certainly right. is very clearly established. But also when you think about it, like, uh, Christopher's real life is, it seems rather fanciful. Like his, like his company is in this big, like almost expressionistic building. Yeah, you know, right. he, his reality I know it's a period piece and all that, but like it doesn't, it seems like a very specific type of whimsical drab instead mm-hmm. of just actually realistically boring, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, I um, also think, um, sorry, I keep cutting off, but, uh, I think Mark Forster, I've, there's some things I like, I would talked recently in the movie journal. I really liked his last film. All, uh, all I see is you, um, by the same cinematographer. And that one was brilliantly <laughs> colorful. Um, but I think there's something in his, visual style that doesn't translate physical comedy. Well, like sure. a, a lot of the stuff we said we thought was funny about Eeyore and Pooh and stuff was in the dialogue. Yes. But think about, uh, Mark Gaddis's introduction as the boss who keeps like clumsily knocking over the, yeah, like it's, it's supposed to be like a comic set piece that he keeps knocking over the display stands of suitcases. Yeah. But Mark Forster, the way he shoots it is like too tight and not, yeah. uh, and, and too, cutting uh t- too much cutting and too close uh and too insistent like he, yeah. you're supposed to let comedy he, breathe especially a physical like, set piece like that he played it like not played it sorry he he shot it and cut it together because i had that same thought where i was just like i feel like i should be laughing but more than anything i just feel frustrated <laughs> yeah <laughs> like yeah. like if this were my boss ruining my work yeah. i would be frustrated like he's he's shooting it like a straightforward drama yeah. and, uh, that's not the nature of the scene. Um, he's like Lawrence Tierney on Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, uh, we, had, we had a guy like, to, what does he say? Uh, 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 a guy in our platoon who, uh, liked to make jokes. They blew his brains out all over the Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> all over the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that episode in a while. I'd have to watch it, but, um, Oh yeah. So the, the best part of the episode is the tag at the end because George has master in the house from Lima's Rob stuck in his head yes. the whole time. And so the very tag, the tag at the end is Lawrence tyranny driving back home to Maryland from New York and going master of the house. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that tag too. Um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to like it so much more than I did. And just, and it's one, it's something that I, I think about a lot is that like all the elements are there. You have good writers, you have good material, uh, a great cast, a a rather conventional, but still a a proven concept. And you just come up with this thing that like, you know what? It's also like elf where like this whimsical thing comes into this guy's life who has been choosing work over his family the whole time. Right, James yeah. Conn, like I can compare it to a lot of things yeah. and, and that's, and yeah, like when they just kept having him choose like work over his family, I, I just kept thinking like it's 2018 guys. This has been done before a <laughs> yeah. lot. Yeah. And, uh, it's yeah. not 2018 in the movie. It's the late forties, right? Or is it early fifties? Right. So maybe they all decided to kind of go, method about it uh-huh, yeah. and just they all acted like this had not been done a billion times since then i'll say to end on a positive note okay 
another comparison I will make in a positive way. The I really liked the whole chase with uh, his daughter and or, or yeah. Ch- I guess Chase and my world word, but they're dashed through London to make it to the suitcase factory yeah. with uh, our four main uh, animals. And that kind of felt, I mean, obviously this is live action, but the idea that they're toys and they're getting through the city, it felt like a toy story set yeah, piece to very me much very so. much. Um, and I like that a, a lot, especially since we got, um, I'm forgetting his name, Gareth from the office. Yeah. But then also Matt Berry from McKenzie Snuff- Crook, McKenzie Crook, Matt Berry Matt from Berry. Snuffbox. Yeah. Um, and then was the taxi driver someone? He is someone. Cause I, I recognize him, but I couldn't. Yeah. Place. He was in the Paddington films and I actually okay. looked him up, but I don't remember his name, but yeah. And I do like, and I, I, as you know, it always stresses me out when one character, even a minor character like the cab driver, uh-huh. when they see something and we know that they saw the right thing, but nobody else believes them. <laughs> like, I'm just like, no, no, listen, he didn't deserve this. Yeah. And so when the other two see it as well and he goes, aha, and he sees their faces like, that's the face I made. And uh, uh, yeah, I just like this nice moment in the middle of this huge, like fast paced sequence for a moment there, like the main characters just go on yeah. and we're seeing this scene, this like yeah. three hander between three, like British comic, like great British comic actors. Yeah. That's a really great little moment. Um, and then I do, uh, I liked the little, uh, Robert Sherman thing there at the oh, end. Uh, I mean, I like that it was there. I didn't like it at all. The, the video, the, not the video, the, uh, essentially, what, what have <laughs> essentially you. a music video or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did not care for that. I, it certainly wasn't necessary yeah. uh, at all. I think more than anything, I think I appreciate the idea of it than the yeah. actual execution. But all right, well, okay, um, we can move on. And then my final movie. Oh my god, this is another one for my uh, top whatever list. Okay. Um, there's a there's a number of Powell and Pressburger movies that I, uh, especially Michael Powell movies that I hadn't gotten around to. Okay, and so uh, for the first time, I watched 1944's A Canterbury Tale. Have oh, you okay. seen this movie? I've not. Holy shit! Okay, it. I mean, it's. I would. Say, it might actually. This is going to sound crazy, but after Black Narcissus, it might be my favorite Paul and Pressburger movie. It, I might have, it might have risen, risen above whatever I would have ne- put next would probably would be the red shoes, I guess. Uh, then Colonel Blimp, uh, Colonel Blimp's your favorite, right? It, yes. Very yeah. Much so, and then probably red shoes. Um, and then probably peeping Tom, honestly, and then probably black narcissist. Um, but, uh, a Canterbury tale is just, uh, a movie that's, if I describe the plot to you, it sounds like a trifle, but it's sure. actually a movie that's about England and being English, especially during the middle of the war. Cause it was made in the middle of right. world war two. And, and, uh, the, there's three stars, uh, there are three lead characters. Um, and despite the name, most of the movie doesn't take place in Canterbury. It takes place in a fictional village called Chillingbourne, which is one train stop before Canterbury. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, a um uh a british sergeant a british uh young woman who's come to Chillingbourne looking for a job and then an american sergeant on leave who was supposed to go to canterbury and got off at the wrong stop find themselves sort of together in this small town mm-hmm. and as they're walking to the town hall or whatever to find out what where they should go uh a weirdo comes up and pours glue on the girl's hair and apparently this is the 11th such attack this summer. They, <laughs> they call him the glue man. And so sort of when the movie 
remembers to be about this it's about these three trying to uncover who is the glue man but then there's also just huge sections of these characters just talking to one another about their lives about their pasts about their futures about england specifically Mm. and the uh, the american is played by a non-professional actor who actually was uh was in the in the army and was stationed there his name is john sweet um uh and this is his only film role and i looked it up he was paid uh two thousand dollars uh the uh entirety of which he donated to the naacp um uh, which is <laughs> good for him yeah um uh and he yeah he, I guess he is white the word forever it's worth i don't know that <laughs> um uh but that was uh um really strange but he's he's such a great performer or a great presence. And he's not, I say non-professional actor. So apparently he did like within, I don't know, USO or whatever he did like perform. Okay. So that's how Michael Powell knew who he was. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, uh, I, as I always say, IMDb trivia page, take with a grain of salt. But, um, apparently before he found John sweet, this non-actor, uh, Burgess Meredith was, uh, mm. at the top of his list for the role, which would have been interesting. Yeah. Um, but this guy's so great. And this movie is so, so beautiful. Um, and so, so small, uh, even though it's, it's over two hours long, I, I think because it, it has the plot of a, of a 70 minute movie, but then it keeps, forgetting that that's the plot and just going off in these, right. <laughs> these great little, uh, digressions and these great little directions. Um, and then the end of the movie, when the three of them, uh, for three different reasons, finally go to Canterbury and they split up in the last sort of, uh, I would call it maybe an extended epilogue of the movie is just the, those three having a day alone in Canterbury hmm. is, um, uh, I, I, I couldn't I, like, I couldn't, I mean, I would obviously I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. That's what, uh, that's what happens when you watch a movie. It's like, um, what about the other movies that you see, David? You're just constantly looking around. But I will, like I, uh, uh, I was, com- I was completely riveted. Um, and I don't want to give too much away, but, uh, it's, it's beautiful. They, um, uh, there's a great use of music, um, near the end. the, the dialogue by Emmerich Pressburger obviously um, is astounding because it's a lot of, like I said, characters having conversations, Mm -hmm. but um, it's, it's very, it's very poetic while not seeing seeming unnatural ever. Um, And that's part of that done of the, the performances uh, as well. But um, it, it, I, I mean, I've, I've been to England once in my life for a few days. I don't know what it is to be English, but this movie seems like it's about what it is to be English to me. Uh, I don't know. I'd love for some of our English listeners to tell me, uh, how they feel about a Canterbury tale. I know, um, the movie wasn't allowed to shoot in the Canterbury cathedral, Mm uh, um, uh, because it was, I guess, in the middle of the war, it actually, the Canterbury Cathedral had, had they'd removed all the stained glass and stuff to, mm-hmm. uh, to protect it from bombings. So they built miniatures and, and some mat shots. But then in the year 2000, I think, they actually showed the movie in the Canterbury Cathedral. Mm-hmm. And John Sweet apparently came back from, uh, um, from the U.S. Uh, to be there for that. Um, it's really amazing. And it is currently, um, you know, I keep track of, uh, I, I keep two lists now, like 2018 movies 
2018 movies and then like old movies I've seen in 2018 that are my favorite because I get to do my film discoveries list for yeah. <laughs> Republican. Uh, this is currently at number one. This is my favorite old movie that I have seen in 2018. Wow. Um, followed very closely by the black stallion and Derek Charmond's Edward the second. Those are my top three right now. I can't remember past that, but those are my top three. All right.